think one of my goals with this book too was to include some of my all-time favorite stories because I wanted to put my perspective on it, such as the Nine Rouge in Detroit, the Ghost of Minnie Quay, and even the Sister Lakes monster. Welcome to the Juxtaposed Journeys Podcast, and happy Boxing Day. I'm your host, Eric Spitz, and in this episode I chat with Amber Rose Hammond. Amber Rose is a supernatural researcher based in Detroit, Michigan, who has spent the better part of the past 20 years examining Michigan's weird and offbeat history. Amber Rose is the author of four books, Ghosts and Legends of Michigan's West Coast, Wicked Ottawa County, Wicked Grand Rapids, and Mysterious Michigan. In addition, she's a co-host on the Ghostly Talk podcast and will be a speaker at the 13th Annual Michigan Paranormal Convention in Sault Ste. Marie in August of 2023. Our conversation ranges from where Amber Rose's interest in the supernatural first began, to writing a book during the pandemic, and we even dive into interesting cryptids and people of the Great Lakes State. As a heads up, we dealt with a few audio issues during the interview. I did the best I could cleaning up any time Amber Rose's audio cut out to still make it easy to follow, but you still may notice a few instances of this happening. My apologies in advance, but hopefully everything is still easy to follow. With all that in mind, just sit back, relax, and get ready for Amber Rose Hammond's journey as an author, supernatural researcher, and explorer of Michigan's offbeat history. All right, Amber Rose, welcome to the Juxtapose Journeys podcast. And first of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with me. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, So we are here to talk all about your involvement with the supernatural, weird, and offbeat history of Michigan, among many other things, I'm sure. So to start things off, when did your interest in the supernatural and unusual Michigan history first begin? When I was a kid. I was always interested in this stuff since I was little. I didn't grow up in a haunted house or have like a crazy psychic aunt or anything strange like that. I just was really attracted. I was that kid that was going straight, you know, number 133 in the library and grabbing any book on hauntings and legends and myths. And growing up in the 80s, you know, you had shows like Unsolved Mysteries. So I would religiously watch that. And then just around the, boy, it was like 2000, this whole ghost hunting thing became really popular and there were ghost hunting groups popping up all over the state and I ended up joining one and I quickly realized like after a year that I was more scared of the living than the dead because there was a lot of situations that we walked into like people's private homes and they're claiming that they have something going on in their home and you're like oh I think maybe you got something else going on, like in your head that's not (laughs) associated with a ghost. And we are not qualified to answer or help you uh, with these problems. So I realized what I liked more was the haunting, you know, the history behind a haunting, why something becomes haunted, why people continue to tell the stories, how the stories change over time, how the internet has affected how we tell those stories and how they continue to morph at, I think, a more faster pace than, let's say, the 60s or the 70s when it was more word of mouth, you know, heard it from a friend of a friend type urban legend stuff. But that I'm just a lifelong paranormal nerd. 
<laughs> awesome. No, that that's great. And honestly, yeah, I identified with a lot of that too. Like, I mean, I grow up reading Goosebump books and everything, and it's hard for oh, me yeah. to like pinpoint yep. exactly, you know, when it all started for me too. Just my general interest in the paranormal world too, and um. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome, and I and I really love that you love the the his, love digging into the history behind these different places, and um, no, I, I think that all of that's really interesting. And now I read on your website that you've lectured extensively around the state at libraries, conferences, and historical cemetery tours, uh, sharing your love of Michigan's weird side. So, what is it about Michigan that makes you want to keep exploring its strange history further? When I when I began all this before I even got involved in ghost hunting. I- Michigan's like the most boring state ever. Um, <laughs> like we would, I remember in fourth grade, we had a class where we had like this cute little Michigan history textbook and stuff. And it was like the state bird is a robin and the animals a wolverine. And we don't even have wolverines here. And <laughs> so it was just like uneventful. The state looks cool, but you know, it didn't, whenever I would go into like Barnes and Noble to pick up a book on hauntings, there'd be like stuff in California, stuff in Colorado, stuff in New York. There was never anything about Michigan. So I think when I started looking into the haunted history of Michigan, that's when everything became a little more interesting because you start doing this research and then you got to get maybe more involved in some of the more mundane history, like the history of a county or a city or when it got started or who started it or who the founders were. So you get into some of that like more boring stuff, but because of the angle you're taking, the approach you're using to look this history up, it becomes way more interesting in the context that you're looking at it through like the paranormal you know context Mm -hmm. oh yeah definitely and yeah michigan's got a lot of just strange history in general and yeah uh, i mean i i feel like i'm not even scratching the surface with just what i know about it but it's just something i've been kind of realizing more and more over time like uh I, I always I stop into dead time stories all the time in, in Rio town and, and Lansing. And yeah, there's like so many, you know, true crime books in there, just all, all Michigan based and about some of its history. And it's all just absolutely wild. Like never would have thought any of this stuff happened. In no. Michigan. And, <laughs> and a lot of that has come about in the past 20 years. The with, with that ghost hunting boom, I, I mentioned this in my latest book, Mysterious Michigan, that while the ghost hunting boom came and went, there's still ghost hunting teams out there and, and, paranormal enthusiasts but it just wasn't like how they're at like one point in the early 2000s there's like 200 paranormal teams trying to operate and go to haunted places and you know get exclusive access to places around michigan and while they kind of came and went what was left was a lot of people who had done research that was just sitting there doing nothing no one you know historians for a, a lot of historians sometimes don't care about haunted history like it's not real history i i was so frustrated because many many years ago there was a woman who worked at a museum that was local to me and i was always like hey i can come and talk hey you know you guys should put my books in your store or whatever and i heard through the grapevine that she was like well that's not real history oh oh well what constitutes real history what's the definition like it does <laughs> does that exclude ghosts and folklore and legends and you know urban legend like uh that's all part of it. So I just feel that this whole boom in paranormal interest led to a lot of stuff being preserved and uncovered, such as the true crime stuff, especially with newspaper. Newspapers are one of my go-to places for like obscure, weird stories and research and just trying to find something new to, to dig up. A lot of like my true crime that I've written about, it just came from newspapers. It was buried. 
And again, another thing that in the past 20 years, as that stuff becomes digitized, which in the past it never was, if anyone out there is old enough to remember sitting in front of a microfiche reader uh, and getting nauseous while like the pages go past you horizontally, <laughs> like that was tedious having to go. There's no search function. It's just your eyes and mm-hmm. your hand on a button sitting in a darkened room. So that just kind of helped also, I think, unearth all of this forgotten history, you know, about Michigan and all around the U.S. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you brought up some really good points there, too, about just how how it's really evolved over time and just kind of like archiving things and, and how it's all become digitized, too, with just a search function, being able to uncover these stories much easier. It's become much uh, more practical now to uncover some of this. And and yeah, I mean, and you've brought it up before too about the boom really in the early 2000s of you know ghost hunting and ghost investigating and yeah it's uh it really took off then and i feel like it's it's much more i guess the paranormal is much more normal now because it's <laughs> you know everyone just eats it up and everyone just um and and more and more sh- stories are getting shared and it's uh but no it's 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 all great too and you alluded to it a little bit previously too but yeah you so you recently released a book titled mysterious michigan so can you talk a little bit about that and what potential readers can expect from that it's Basically, I'm describing it as a supernatural journey through Michigan's offbeat history. Okay. Because it's a little bit of everything. I kind of wanted to show how the supernatural has affected different things in particular pieces of Michigan history. I wanted to introduce the whole spiritualism era in Michigan because Michigan was one of the biggest hubs for spiritualism when it came out, particularly in the 18. 80s through the 1930s we were kind of like one of the headquarters in the midwest for spiritualism and i wanted to give kind of a little framework on that whole thing because it's fascinating history to me and spiritualism is still around it's just not like what it was when it first appeared with the fox sisters in 1848 and everything Mm -hmm. they unintentionally created afterwards but so and it kind of goes through some legends some history some true crime it's a little bit of everything for anybody who likes, like I said, likes that strange offbeat history with a supernatural twist to it. Nice. Yeah, no, and um, admittedly, I've not read it yet, but yeah, I mean, you're um, speaking to all my points right there. That's definitely something I could I could easily pick up and read, and I'm really intrigued by that. But yeah, and I know you're also the, the author of Ghosts and Legends of Michigan's West Coast, Wicked Ottawa County, and Wicked Grand Rapids. So was your approach to writing Mysterious Michigan any different than your previous books? This one was store like my very first book because it was it's an oldie now it's like published in two thousand nine <laughs> it feels so long <laughs> ago and that one was kind of more written from the perspective of like a maybe ghost hunting a little more because mm-hmm. I was more involved in investigation during the time of writing that book so there's some elements of like my personal investigations I was involved in what other ghost hunters might have had happen to them somewhere where like my newer book newest is not, doesn't really offer like that ghost hunting perspective. It's strictly like that historical window into the paranormal. And it was a lot of miscellaneous stories that I've been hanging on to. And I just didn't know how to put them together Mm -hmm. until my publisher was like, you got any ideas? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) well, they put out phenomenal titles about stuff all over the state, but when they got started, they were kind of exclusive to very specific areas. So if you wanted to write about ghosts and hauntings, they wanted you to write about like one city, Mm -hmm. one area, a County, 
and all of these other stories I had, I'm like, oh, that's the entire state. Like, why don't these people <laughs> do books about the state? What is their trip? And finally, I noticed like a couple years ago that they had a supernatural Pennsylvania title. And I was like, oh! so I like wrote my editor and I'm like, what is this? What is this? You guys are doing the whole like whole states now. Come on. So I pitched like an idea and they were like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. And I'm like, about time. So I finally had a home for these stories that I just don't fit into one particular county or city. Nice. Yeah. And um, no, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, all those stories are just kind of getting stored up and like, oh, you know, how can I possibly put these all together and release them? But no, that makes so much sense. The, the approach yeah. you took. And I'm really glad you're able to, to find a, a place to do that. And and that's really interesting, too, that the older books are much more like ghost hunting oriented. But it makes sense because that's really primarily what you were doing at that time. So yeah. it makes sense that that would kind of spill over into what you're writing. So uh, this may be kind of a difficult question to answer, but does the process of writing a book get any easier the more you do it at all? Or are there different <laughs> yeah. challenges that come up? <laughs> Duh. So the very first time I wrote a book, I was like super organized. I was like, yeah, I had, I like wrote out my table of contents. I was like on top of my research. Like I, I tried to go and get as many photos as I could of locations. Cause if you have to pay for photo usage, it can get quite expensive. And mm -hmm. that's not typically something like, like at my publishing level, like they're not going to pay for photos. They're like, that's on you. So <laughs> I was like, I, I got it done. I don't even think I asked for an extension was on top of it. I had six months to get it done. Boom, bam, there you go. And then the second book came around and that one, I just, it was because it was true crime. And I'm honestly, I am not a big true crime fan, mm -hmm. but because of the nature of how I do my research, going through these old newspapers, I would find these stories where I was like, what? This is bonkers. Like, this is a really weird story. Like, I got to look into this. And so I just collected stories about Ottawa County and that one, I think I asked like for a two week extension or something. Um, I ended up trying to illustrate a few of my own photos at the time because I just could not find anything that could coincide with some of the stories. And they ask for a minimum number of photos. So I was just trying to be good and fulfill that. <laughs> but I don't know. I look back on my illustrations now, like early, like some early digital art exploration. And I was like, Ugh, I hate them. Like I want to rip them out of the book, but whatever. <laughs> They're there. So then the <laughs> Grand Rapids book, I think I ended up asking for like two extensions on that. Like, so an extra four weeks and oh, writing during a pandemic. So the latest book, because I had a big gap in between because I thought, you know, I, the, the third book stressed me out and I thought I'm not, I'm not going to ever hand in another manuscript until it's like done. Like I'll, I'll finish a book and then I'll write them and ask them if they want it. And okay, that, that's not going to work because I'm a procrastinator. So I need to have that like deadline to even get me to do stuff. So I ended up signing a contract before the pandemic hit. And then the pandemic hits and I'm like, oh, well, this was going to be easy. I, I have nothing else to focus on. Mm -mm -mm. No, <laughs> like being trapped in the house. You have all of your distractions that are at home, whether it's your cats, you know, mm -hmm. people in the house organizing something, just staring at a wall, just getting distracted. And I used to always write all my other books I previously wrote at like coffee shops. I'd go somewhere other than my house so I could mm -hmm. focus better and I just didn't have that here so I ended up asking for like mega extensions this one took me a whole year to write and it was a little more research intensive compared to my other ones plus with everything shut down during the pandemic 
I couldn't go to libraries or museums. I had to work with librarians and people like just through email, have them scan things for me. And for a long chunk of time, some of those librarians couldn't even get into their library. They weren't allowed to go back in, you know, until things started to lighten up a bit. And then they were like, okay, we're sorry this took us two months, but we can finally have access to our building again. So there was a lot of just delays in that way. And then like during that time, then we got COVID. Mm. So then that kind of like set me back like a month where you're just like completely distracted by that nonsense. So you're like, oh, so it's, <laughs> it has its stresses. And then once it's done, you got to sit there and wait for it to be published. And I think I had to wait. I can't remember when I turned it in, but I think I had to wait like three months of just sitting around then doing nothing. And you're like, oh God. <laughs> Like, so it just, it goes from like super stressful to like just sitting around waiting for like the day it, it comes out. Yeah, no, for sure. And I know that makes a lot of sense. And obviously the, the pandemic threw a curveball for everybody. I mean, this, yeah. this podcast was a, was a result of the pandemic and yeah, like I was, I was oddly like really productive during the pandemic, arguably a little too productive. Like I probably <laughs> should have been chilling out a little bit, but <laughs> it was, uh, but everyone obviously reacts to it differently and that and there were, you know, a lot of uncertainties in the world and a lot of anxiety yep. with that and obviously being cooped up at home there's still a lot of distractions within the household that can happen. So yeah, it's it's really situational for each person. But um but no, I'm really glad you were ultimately able to to knock it out and everything and now, you may have already answered this a little bit before, but I guess in terms of the process of writing your books, is there a part of the process you enjoy the most? Is it the research? Is it the writing? Is it putting everything together? Or is it a combination of all three? <laughs> I think it's the research. I, I'll never stop. For sure. I'll never stop. It's like, it's like people that paint and they keep like adding just a little more purple, just a little dab here. <laughs> just, let's, re, let's reconfigure this corner here. And at one point, I just got to go stop stop. You don't need to look up the particular color of whatever coat the dude was wearing that day. Stop. <laughs> and then, then yeah, you got to organize it in a way that's going to be clear and concise and hopefully be entertaining someone. And mm -hmm. that part, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's just not like I would love to, if, if I could, I'd rewrite every single one of my books, but that's me. Cause like I said, I wouldn't be able to stop. I would just keep doing mm -hmm. it. <laughs> And I think that's, that's the benefit to having things like a blog, anything that's digital is you can go back like two years and read a blog post and go, Oh, I hate that sentence and change it. <laughs> you can't do that when it's in print, you know, it's done. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and it's honestly, it's so funny because I've interviewed quite a few artists on this podcast, like, you know, ones who have a, just a wide variety of mediums that they work in, whether it's, you know, acrylic or just uh, charcoal or, or whatever it may be. And I'll always kind of ask that question on if, you know, if they ever know when one of their pieces is done and they have a difficult time answering that too, of just, you know, they always are constantly tweaking things or fine tuning things. Check out the episodes featuring Cheyenne Brooks, Annie Curl, or Ray Hosler to see other examples of this. And I identify a lot with that too. I mean, I do it a lot with this podcast as well to where I'll just get really down the rabbit hole, like unnecessarily with like research or something like, do I have to explain this and like a punch in or clarify this better or something? And I'll just get really wrapped up in it. Yep. It's a lot of fun, but at the same time, it's just like, it can, it can take a lot of time and a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you can make it as tedious as you want. And if you're a perfectionist, <laughs> like you'll never stop. Right. Exactly. No, for sure. And sometimes it's it's hard to find that line of just like, okay, when do I need to just call this good and just walk away? Because if not, I'm just going to be tweaking it forever and it's never going to be released. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And 
Now, I guess in regards to Michigan's offbeat stories, is there a particular Michigan story that you always love telling or that you feel doesn't get told enough? Oh, that's a good question. I think like one of the stories I'm really enjoying sharing with people right now is someone I was able to put in my new book. And it's about this artist, Marion Spore Bush. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled upon her with when I was going through newspaper searches and I was looking up mediumistic artists, people that channel their art and claim it comes from a spirit or the other side or subconscious, like some kind of channeling, I guess, and paint, draw, do whatever. But she, I found her and she was the first female dentist in Bay City, Michigan. She opened up her practice in 19, 1901, 1902. I can never remember dates on the spot. Marion Spore Bush opened her practice in 1901 if you really want to get technical. I've also provided a link to more information on Marion Spore Bush in the show notes. But really early, she graduated from U of M in 1899. And it's great looking at those her class photo because it's like her and like one other girl among, amongst like a class of like, you know, 100 guys. It's really cool seeing that. And she had a successful practice for like 20 years in Bay City. But then when her mother died... And uh, around 1919, she was super distraught, horribly depressed, and someone suggested, hey, you should try a Ouija board. And so she went to, like, she had to go to a hardware store to get it. I love it. And she picked it up, and at first she was like, I'm not going to use this. This is an insult to my mother's memory. Like, it says it's a game, and it takes two people to play. And she eventually got, like, her dad to help her and... Long story short, I won't like go into all the details, but mm -hmm. she felt that she started to connect with her mother and then with a kind of artist collective she just for the rest of her life called They. And they would help her paint. They told her what materials to buy, what colors to, mm. to use. And she would just set up. She started sketching at first, and then they told her to buy canvas, to buy oil paint. And she would just put her arm to the canvas and kind of, just get this feeling and then just let her arm just start moving and just listen to the, literally the voices in her head telling her what to do. And she did claim that she was channeling famous artists. Like uh, I think the one that people might know to this day would be Gustave Doré, who was a famous engraver mm -hmm. and like did this amazing, like kind of grotesque, hideous, really cool artwork for a lot of different stuff back in the 19th century. But she went on to move to New York City and moved in the kind of their bohemian art district and started painting. And around 1924, the newspapers got wind of this woman that was channeling ghosts and doing psychic painting and all these different kind of titles that they came up for. Uh, and the press just ran with it. She became really, really popular. I loved because they always said the young woman, the young woman, because she looked extremely young, mm -hmm. but she was like 41 or 42 already when she was, when she did this. <laughs> and so she has a long, weird career doing this spirit led art. Her stuff is really surrealistic, really trippy looking towards, she would start making predictions. A lot of her predictions were, were political. Some stuff was accurate. Some wasn't like she was convinced that Japan and England were going to be in cahoots together. And that never mm. happened, but <laughs> her whole thing with Japan, you could kind of go, well, Pearl Harbor. She definitely was always predicting that world war two was going to happen. She has this phenomenal painting that she did in the thirties. And she said it was New York city. And 
it was just two planes crashing into buildings and then like fire. And she just called it when. Hmm. So I've been at my presentations, I've been saving that photo. And like, when, as I go and start talking about Marion, I go, and you know, and then this one, and I, I love the collective gasp when everyone kind of, when it sinks in that it, it pretty much looks like nine 11. So she ends up marrying one of the millionaires caught his attention in New York. His name was Irving T. Bush. And, you know, they stayed together until she died in 1946. But she was researched by the American Psychical Research Society. Dr. Walter Franklin Prince was one of the researchers that worked with her and never doubted her. And Houdini, who hated mediums and spiritualists and all of that nonsense, he just thought, it's nonsense. These people are better magicians than myself. And he felt that she was legit. And so on some of like her advertisements and stuff, they'd be like, Houdini said, this is a great exhibition. Like when they were showing her art and stuff, but she, and she admits in, in, in her uh, bi- autobiography that was published after her death that yeah, her, her and Houdini were buddies. And I thought that was just so cool that of all the people that dug her, you know, Harry Houdini was one of them, but her story is kind of buried she's a niche artist because she's considered that outsider art or folk art Mm -hmm. or self-taught artist and but her paintings some of her family released her paintings around 2015 and a uh, folk art auction house sold her stuff and initially it went for fairly like like it was not cheap i think they were surprised at what the prices went for i luckily somehow got four of her paintings on eBay like a thousand years ago. Cause I've been research- researching her since like 2010 <laughs> and, and someone in Bay city like was selling some of her stuff and it was like some family member. And I was like, Oh, Oh my God. And I got it. You know, I'm like, Oh, <laughs> so I can say I own four of her paintings, but it recently, one of her big ones that is pictured in my book that is either called famine or sometimes starvation. I, it went up, in the same auction house. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to spend some money. This is good. Okay. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And Oh no, I couldn't do it. It went for $30,000. So that was a little bit out of my budget. Uh, (laughs) so, but her, she's getting recognition again, again, she's kind of a niche artist. So it's not like she's, you know, every, it's going to be a household name down the road, but I think people are realizing that, Hey, this woman is really unique produced extremely interesting artwork, has this great backstory. And I don't know, she's, she's like the person I'd go back in time with and, you know, hang out with and have lunch. <laughs> no, for sure. No. And I'm really glad you brought up Marianne Scorebush because I was listening to your interview on Hysteria 51 podcast oh, and you brought yeah. her up there as well. Yeah. And I, I knew nothing about her before you mentioned her, but yeah, I mean, just that description right there and everything just made me really fascinated into her history and who she was. And it just makes me want to learn more about her and yeah, I I really just need to brush up more on my Michigan history with cryptids and everything, honestly, too, because I've always been familiar with Dogman. But I mean, even on there, you you mentioned the Sister Lakes monster, the Dewey Lake yeah. monsters. I never heard of those before, so I'm gonna have to brush up on my on my uh, history. <laughs> well, and that was I'm I'm bad at cryptids too. Like I, there are so many cryptids around the U.S. and I I just don't know all of them. And yeah, when it comes to Michigan. Like, yeah, Dogman. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bigfoot. I think Bigfoot comes in second. I, gi- I give Dogman number one. Mm-hmm. And of course, like the occasional lake monster that someone reports. I think 
throughout the years, whenever a river monster was reported, it was a sturgeon Mm -hmm. because river sturgeon can get really massive. And when they just pop up, they look, they look like dinosaurs. They're from the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I tracked a, a river monster that was in the early 1900s going through Grand Haven and the Grand River. And just the people were losing their mind. Like they were convinced there was a sea monster in the river. And I, like many, many, many years later, because sturgeon can live like o- like over a century. I think someone had spotted it because later on, I bet you anything, it was the same sturgeon. But in the 70s, it was known, it was spotted sometimes and it was called Old Mo. That was the name it was given at that point. So there's been different times throughout the decades where someone has said, yes, there is a sturgeon in the bayous and stuff kind of like moving around the river and in and out of the areas over there. But yeah, the sister lakes one, that was part of, I think one of my goals with this book too, was to include some of my all time favorite stories because I wanted to put my, my perspective on it, Mm -hmm. such as the nine Rouge in Detroit, the ghost of Minnie Quay and even the sister lakes monster. I had heard of it before, but I knew that that was sort of an, underrepresented cryptid in Michigan. So, and I think it's a great story. It was never confirmed exactly what it was. Like, it's not like the police said, yes, this is what we caught. This is what it was. For all we know, it was some type of Bigfoot or dog man like creature or whatever, something interdimensional, who knows, but Mm -hmm. it really terrorized the area of sister lakes, uh, you know, back in 1964 for a good couple of weeks. And Long before it was doing its uh, monster thing in 1964, the police had been getting re- uh, reports, I think, from like two to they th- I've heard things say from two to five years. Hmm. They were getting reports of something that people couldn't explain and would kind of quietly go to the police and just be like, you know, don't tell anyone, but I saw, <laughs> you know, something <laughs> I can't explain. And so something was lurking in this area to be to have reports trickling in for that long. Wow. Yeah, no, that's that's wild. And um, you brought up a really good point, too, with like sturgeon, you know, as possibly like a river monster type thing. And it makes you wonder, like, how many of these cryptids are just kind of misidentified or something or how many, you know, cross, I guess, boundaries and culture. Because there's a lot of uh, things that sound very Bigfoot-esque, but they're called something different in other parts of the country or it it really makes you wonder. It almost. Yeah, I don't know. And I'm sure they're probably doing this um, and I just don't know what I'm talking about. But it makes you wonder if they're all just like kind of collectively like getting together, swapping information to make sure that it's (laughs) not the same thing. (laughs) It's. It's true because there probably have been a lot of cryptids over the years that have been just some kind of misidentified creature. Right. And then someone tells the story and then the story gets kind of warped and changed through time. And then mm-hmm. someone's told that they're going to see some, you know, yellow and green monster shaped like a banana. So then the next time someone goes out there knowing the story, they're convinced they saw this banana shaped monster. And then it just yep. keeps going from there. Right. You know, it's, it's psychology, you know, when you, especially when you're going somewhere to deliberately get spooked out. But I know if you don't do your research just in general, I, for example, I, one night I got home late at night and growing up in Grand Haven, we had, I, we lived in a wooded area and I came home and I was in our driveway. It was pitch black, you know, probably one in the morning. And I just heard this scream from the woods. Like what, uh, what kind of animal, like enough to just make you just stop and stand there. And so finally I walked in, I didn't keep, I, you know, heard it a couple times walked inside and immediately went to YouTube 
and started typing in like things that scream in the woods. And, you know, you're going to get all kinds of weird content, you know, when you type something like that. But when you start, you know, narrowing down your search, like things that scream in the woods at night in Michigan, I mm-hmm. then got video of Fox making their sounds at night. And it was a Fox in the woods, just screaming. Mm. Like those things make a sound like that's blood curdling. Yeah. So if, again, you're someone that is, doesn't want to bother to do the research or investigate further and you hear a blood curdling weird animalistic scream in the woods you might just start telling people that a big a little baby bigfoot or something was screaming in your backyard and a story gets started <laughs> right no I, I'm, I'm glad you got to the bottom of that mystery <laughs> but no i think you bring up a, an important point too i think it is really important for uh, to do your research and just kind of dig into something if you're questioning something because you know, that is a very important part about whether you're talking about the paranormal world or true crime or cryptids or what have you. I mean, you have to take the scientific approach to it and have to, you know, rule out any sort of other possibilities of what it could be because and just not jump to conclusions and assume everything's Bigfoot. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you've got to be willing to, to be bummed by your results. Right. Because everybody, like when I got started ghost hunting, of course you wanted like that weird sound that showed up in your EVP to be something. But then you find out it was some other member that did this because they walked into the room at that time. And you're like, oh, oh. right. And if you <laughs> didn't care or didn't have morals, sure, you could pass it off as something ghostly on the Internet. No one would know the better. But you got to like, yeah, just be ready to debunk yourself left and right before you can throw it out there as some kind of potential paranormal phenomena. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I think that's really important to do, too, is just to take a step back and then, you know, take a macro approach of things and be like, okay, could it possibly this? Could it possibly this? Because at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, like everyone wants to kind of have this experience or, you know, have something that they can't explain. I mean, okay, maybe not they want it, but they're they're intrigued by the idea and they're curious with it. And I'm, I'm guilty of it, too. So, yeah, I think it is really important to be grounded, you know, get a second opinion, maybe, and... You know, at the end of the day, maybe it is just a howling fox, you know, right, here in right. the woods. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, but great. Yeah, so no, I think this is a good time to segue to a series of travel questions I have. So now that I have a sense of your recent life journey, I kind of want to ask a series of questions to get a sense of your travel taste. And these are questions I've been asking all my guests in recent interviews. And since life is full of both physical and metaphorical journeys, I want my listeners to get a taste of some physical destinations you've experienced or want to experience that are worth exploring. So... You ready to give it a shot? Ready. All right, perfect. City, state, or country with the best food, and what is your go-to food of choice? <gasps> oh, too many options. Um, <laughs> oh, no. I, oh, boy. I, uh, that's a hard one, Eric, because I love all food. <laughs> I love all food. I'm the same way. I know it's a difficult one. And I can't say that I have traveled enough i mean i've traveled a lot but i can't say i went somewhere and had some type of local food that just me out of the water and i knew you know because i'm like for example if like i've never been to new orleans like so i can't say oh i had new orleans gumbo or something right um (laughs) and in fact i think when we were out in new england we went to this place to get like classic new england like seafood and it was just a bummer so yeah (laughs) it was like oh (laughs) like my long john silvers tasted better than this like what that's, I don't, Eric, that's hard. I mean, it's, I love all food. And I, I will say in Michigan, mm-hmm. I do like some of our, like, I like a pasty. Um, oh, yeah. I like a good meat pie. 
<laughs> oh yeah, great choice. <laughs> you know, yeah, I like our our Detroit style pizza. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. Buddies is so far been my favorite. Like in Detroit, if no one's had Buddies, like oh, it's so good. Melt in your mouth crust. Oh my god, um, I'm so glad you brought that up. Honestly, that that is a perfectly fine answer because Buddies okay. is so underrated. <laughs> I love Detroit style pizza. That is a perfectly acceptable answer. And for okay. anyone who's not a Michigander is not familiar. It's basically just essentially cheese bread with the sauce on top. So the big thing with Detroit style pizza is the sauce is on top, but it's like a like a deep dish square style pizza. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like if I eat regular pizza, I never eat the crust unless I have something to dunk it in. Otherwise, the crust mm-hmm. is like ugh. You know that goes in the garbage. Yeah. You don't. You don't. You always you eat the whole pizza with with Detroit style. <laughs> like oh it's yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. No, that is a that is a great answer. And yeah, I I talk buddies up all the time. So that's a that's a great shout out there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. my answer. All right. Uh, most underrated city, state, or country. Oh boy. Hmm. These are hard questions, Eric. Underrated. <laughs> I, I thought state. hard about these. I know. And I know. these are like the four. I, I got four for you. So after this, you're halfway. <laughs> you know, for keeping it local, I do think that Detroit is underrated. Mm-hmm. Someone who is not a native of Detroit, but living in the area, I am always shocked by how much cool stuff is over here. And it's all within like. A 40 minute drive from wherever you at, if you, you know, wherever you are in Metro Detroit, mm-hmm. you can get to world-class museums, like amazing. If you talk about food, mm-hmm. I mean, any type of food you want from any type of like, if you want Lebanese, Greek, Mediterranean, Chinese, Korean barbecue, whatever you want, like it's here. Oh yeah. And a lot of places don't have that luxury. Like they're like, they get American style Mexican. Mm-hmm. They have a burger joint, you know, it's like not over here. <laughs> Uh, and I just, just this recently, uh, just this past weekend, I went to uh, an event by that my buddy John Tenney was putting on and he has a podcast called what's up weirdo. Mm. And they were kind of doing a live podcast in Detroit and it was in this place called Eastern market. And I had never been there. I thought it was just like a big building that was called Eastern market. And little did I know it's like this, just kind of more of an area of all of these old buildings and there's breweries and restaurants and, and there's murals everywhere on these old brick buildings. And it's just like, mm-hmm. again, I was just surprised. Like I've been coming over here for about almost 20 years and living over here for about five. And I'm just shocked at how much cool stuff is over here. And it gets kind of that bad reputation of like, Ooh, Detroit, I'm going to get shot. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't want to go to Detroit. Like everything's falling mm-hmm. apart there. And it's really come a long way even like in the past five years, there are so many buildings mm-hmm. that have been redone and repurposed and are getting that second wind in life and areas of Detroit that even my husband was like, oh, yeah, you did not walk down the cast corridor in the 90s. Um, mm-hmm. And now they have the nine, nine Rouge Parade. It goes down the cast corridor and everybody's just happy and dressed up like weirdos and drinking. So mm-hmm. it's it's just a I think Detroit, I'd say Detroit is a very underrated travel destination. Oh, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, being a, a Michigander myself, I grew up in Lansing and going to Detroit in the late 90s, early 2000s, completely different experience than going to Detroit now. It's yeah, yeah it's cleaned up a lot. It gets and, you know, Detroit oftentimes gets a lot of bad rep, but it's it's a great city. Yeah. Tons of diversity. Great yep. food options. Yeah. So um, that's a great answer for it. Top city, state or country on your bucket list that you would love to experience someday. Hmm, Egypt. Ooh, that's a good one. 
I'd love to go to Cairo. I want to see the pyramids. Nice. I uh, Okay, so this episode is not out. Well, by the time this episode airs, this episode will have already been out. But I interviewed somebody recently who basically had like a borderline life-changing experience like in Egypt and her business is primarily formulated around their history, their culture, and just some of their products. Check out the episode titled Ashley Dozier's Journey with Solo Traveling, Fine Fragrances, and Anakit Luxury Apothecary to hear the full story on that. Yeah, she she had an absolutely like amazing time out there and really talked up. And Egypt's like huge on my list too. I mean, there's so much mystery surrounding the pyramids and just the overall culture there. And yeah, it's, I'm dying to go there and experience the pyramids myself. And I have a lot of people that have acquaintances and stuff that I know that have gone there, and they'll tell you like, don't be scared because there's so many people from the United States that are like, oh, I'm gonna you know get blown up or there's gonna be a terrorist attack or. Just these stigmas that we have about going, like, you know, over to the Middle East. And Mm -hmm. they're, like, they want your tourism. The people of Egypt, like, are desperate for you to be there. Like, and especially if you go on, like, I would never go there solo. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't just go there with someone else. I would go on a tour. Yeah. A, I don't speak the language. B, I'm not familiar with every cultural custom. Mm -hmm. I don't want to offend anyone or do anything stupid. And (laughs) so it'd be best to be in a group with someone who knows what to do and tells you where to go, knows where the bathroom's at. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, just (laughs) all those things. But yeah, I've had people that say like, no, don't be scared of going to Egypt. Like you just got to do it once. Oh yeah, no, definitely. And, um, maybe I'll be bold enough one day to do like a a solo trip to different countries. I know some people have done that. I've even interviewed people on this podcast who have done it. I love the idea of it, but yeah, for now, um, I agree. I mean, all the international traveling that I've done has all been in groups and it makes a world of difference just in terms of, you know, going into a culture that you're not familiar with, especially if it's a foreign language, you know, it's, it's a language that you don't speak going into it. Mm -hmm. So that makes a big difference. And then those subtle cultural differences too, those definitely make a big difference as well. And things that you don't think about consciously that obviously make a big difference. So yeah, get a group together, go to Egypt. I uh, support this. (laughs) 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 All right. So finishing with the, uh, the heavy handed one, your personal favorite city, state or country you've been to. I think one of my ultimate favorite trips was going to uh, England. Nice. Okay. Yeah. When I was like young, I was 18. So it was 1998. And as a family trip, we, we did the England, Scotland thing. And yes. that was just like, it was so cool. Everything is so old mm-hmm. compared to, oh, like, yeah. I, I grew up, tra- I had a family that traveled. So I had traveled around the U.S. when I was really young. I mean, national parks, mm-hmm. Disney World every year. That's my one commercial place that I will um, just, I love it. I love Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's like expensive and insane when you go there, but there's just something about it. And, but uh, yeah, we finally, we finally made the trip over the pond and that was just amazing. Plus you could drink there mm-hmm. with family. And that was to us like, oh my God, you know, cause you're kids. We have, like, the family slipping us, like, pint after pint of cider, like, getting buzzed <laughs> up, like, every night. It was the best. And uh, I, so I think, yeah, going to London, seeing Stonehenge in person. Oh, my God. Was yeah. really cool because that was just such an iconic thing as a kid being interested in mysterious places growing up. I don't know if you remember, like, from the 80s, the, um, uh, what do they call it? It was the Time Life series, uh. Oh, they did this. I got, I got, I got him. I can't even see him from my bookshelf. It was like time life mysteries of whatever. Yeah. People out there probably know what I'm talking about. They have these black covers, but anyway. 
The name of that series is Mysteries of the Unknown. Since I was a 90s kid, these were a little before my time, but I can tell these would have definitely been my jam. I provided a link to them in the show notes. You'd see, like, all these mystical places, and Stonehenge would always be, like, number one in all those kind of books. And mm-hmm. I will say that driving there and seeing it, I was like, oh, it's a lot smaller than I thought. And it's just, in the <laughs> middle of a, it's just in the middle of a field. Like, I don't know if I just thought, like, there was just, I don't know, more of a Lord of the Rings vibe or something. Just epic and waterfalls and mythical creatures dancing around it. But it was... Um, <laughs> So it was, I will say it was a little like underwhelming compared to how I built it up mm-hmm. in my mind. But then once you stood around it and just kind of looked at it and you just felt the vibe from the area, I know now there is like a whole big visitor center. There's a, a lot more built around Stonehenge from versus when I was there in 1998, it was much more mm-hmm. natural. There was just a little visitors like kiosk off to the side and that was it. And then there it was just in a field and farmers farmed around it. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still like, it was just kind of an epic, iconic thing to see in person. And I, I still have like a tiny stick that I took from Stonehenge. Cause well, you can't take any piece of Stonehenge. You can't go <laughs> right. chip, you know, chip anything off of it. So I remember seeing a stick and I'm like, <laughs> I will take this stick with me. <laughs> I still have it. <laughs> oh no, that's awesome. No, and I love that story. Oh my gosh. Uh, I just went over and experienced Scotland for the first time oh, uh, yeah. just back in August. I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I went with the group as well. And yeah, oh my gosh. I went to the Isle of Iona right off the western coast. Uh, I mean, among other places, but oh my gosh, I loved it so much. Yeah. I mean, the, <sighs> mo- the island's only, I want to say like three miles wide by like a mile long or something along those lines. Very small island. And, you know, it's said to be like holy and sacred ground and whatnot. But it's it's like regardless on if you're, you know, spiritual or religious or, or what have you. But it's just this different energy there. And it's yeah. just, you know, it's it's very simple. It's oh, my gosh. So breathtaking the views. And it's oh, it's it's incredible. And and yeah, I mean, you, you said that mentioned that before, too, about just the history as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Like in London and. The, yeah, their stuff is old. I mean, every place we went to is just like, oh, this place is built in 500. It's like, you know. don't see these places in America. No. <laughs> this just doesn't exist. I know. <laughs> um, I think Westminster Abbey was celebrating its 1,000th year when we were there. And I'm like, oh, of Duh. course it is. Um, and everything <laughs> is so green. Like, yeah. It's oh a green gosh. that I just don't seem to at least experience in Michigan. Right. Maybe if you went out to, like, Olympia National Forest or something out there, you know, out west. or Yeah. I, I don't know, but just it's so green. And yeah, there is just a vibe about that area. I know we went to like Edinburgh and um, mm-hmm. like the the beginning of the Highlands, Sterling. Uh, I just, yeah, I'd go back there in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. And I honestly like the food there more than I thought I would. Because no one really talks much about like, you know, Scottish food or anything or people <laughs> like t- turn their head up at like haggis or whatever. But honestly, like and I'm, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but I broke it for like cultural reasons. Like I'll I'll be I'll, I'll be flexible with it uh, depending on if I'm traveling or whatnot. Right. But I actually tried a little bit of haggis and I actually liked it. <laughs> I I remember they had the mad cow disease was going on when I was there. So they were like, don't don't eat any beef. Um, mm-hmm. if you, oh, eat beef, yep, yep. yeah, like if you eat beef, um, just, you got to go to like a, a main, a main restaurant, like, like, I think we have a cafe and hmm. I guess you could get, like have a hamburger there. Um, but they, like from any type of like small little out in the country place, they're like, don't eat the beef, don't eat the beef, like mad cow. Mm. Okay. I, okay. So it was like nonstop fish and chips for me. Yeah. 
also like I was really mortified when we got our first English breakfast because as someone who like grew to like baked beans and someone who still can't stand <laughs> mushrooms, I was horrified. That's like all it is. Oh yeah. I was horrified. <laughs> I like, they put this plate, I'm just like, yeah, I'll get English breakfast number one. Sounds great. And there's like <laughs> eggs that are, that my like baked beans are like <laughs> melting into with like boiled tomatoes and like mushroom. And I was like, Bleh. oh my God, like, what is this? Oh, we're here for two weeks. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. I know. And I'm not a picky eater by any means, but I'm not like a, a big mushroom fan. And yeah, that was... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, was... I still ate it, but it was like, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. But yeah, it was um, <laughs> a lot of lot of sausages, a lot of beans, yeah. a lot of um, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's very like hearty. <laughs> I got I got used to the baked beans because I would forget to like say no baked beans because you're just not used to that as an American. <laughs> no baked beans in my breakfast, please. But I I also had to order the quintessential. Uh, as a joke, of course, and we're all giggling, and the waitress, like, they're not, the, the wait staff is just like, what? Oh, oh my God, dumb American kids. Uh, <laughs> but we were at, like, this little joint, like, in the countryside somewhere, and they had spotted dick on the menu. And so I, <laughs> they're like, remember, you got to get it. I'm okay. And then, so, of course, you order it, and you're like, uh, I'll have the spotted dick. <laughs> you know, you're giggling. <laughs> and I don't know where, honestly, the name came from, and it really is good. It's like a, it's like a spongy cake custard whatever they call it uh with like a mm. warm custard and then there's raisins in it hence the spotted i guess oh nice but i i don't know where the name comes from and yeah it's just dumb <laughs> americans like Ooh. and we're 18 so of course anything like with a name like that is hilarious to us so <laughs> well now i know what i'm ordering when i go back there yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oh my gosh. I could talk all day about this stuff, but yeah, just kind of like wrapping up with final thoughts and everything. Now, do you currently have any upcoming events or projects that you're really excited about? Any other books in the works or anything? I am continuing to work with Marion Spore Bush. I do mm -hmm. have a website coming out devoted to all of her known works. So I, I don't know when that's going to be released, but that is a project that I have. I am currently trying to finish up because there is nothing like it on the internet. And years ago, I quickly bought up marionsporebush.com. I was like, nope, nope, I'm going to do something with her life. <laughs> so I knew already like a decade ago I was going to do something with it. But, um, and finally now it's going to happen. So yeah, she's probably my next big writing project. I'd like to do something more with her. And I will be speaking at the Michigan Paracon next August, which I'm really excited about. Because weirdly enough, Michigan has one of the nation's biggest paranormal conferences and it happens right here in our lovely up in sault st marie go figure <laughs> yeah and who would have thought i know <laughs> i know i heard you mentioning that on other podcasts as well and it's like i never knew but yeah i'm gonna have to venture to that now i'm i'm very intrigued <laughs> well anyone that is into i will say it's kind of like more of a comic con for paranormal people so if you are very much into any variety of the shows out there like ghost hunters or ghost adventures or any of those there's a lot of the people from those shows typically at this event that you know do a talk hmm. photo opportunities autographs that kind of thing oh nice i think when i was there last josh gates was there from i forget his show he does oh my gosh what is his show not destination america that's a that's a defunct channel um josh oh is it destination fear Maybe something like that. The name of that show is Expedition Unknown, in case you were curious. 
I don't know. He's kind of a cool guy. Like he, he was, he was neat to meet in person, very, very approachable where you do. I have passed by some of these, you know, air quotes that no one can see paranormal celebrities and <laughs> you're sort of like, uh, okay. Like, uh. but hmm. if you are into that kind of thing, that is the place to go to meet some of those people. And like 99% of them are very awesome people. Awesome. So it, it's a cool experience. And then of course there's a lot of just researchers there selling their books and wares and, and it's a great place for like-minded people to just bump heads and have beers at night. And it's at a casino. So you can also like try your luck at the casino. <laughs> so, so win, oh, nice. win, win. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, you sold me. I definitely know where I'm going in yeah. all this. So <laughs> perfect. And now is there anything I forgot to ask about that you wanted to touch on before we get into plugins? I don't think so. We covered a ton. Cool. Yeah, no, I think we covered a lot of ground here. So where can people find more information about yourself, your books, and anything else you want to plug? Uh, they can head over to MysteriousMichigan.com. Uh, you can head over to AmberRoseHammond.com. If you want to hear me blab on some more, you can head over to GhostlyTalk.com or just search Ghostly Talk Podcast in any of the podcast apps that you use and subscribe. We we don't do, we're not like a super regular show. Like We do like two, sometimes more a month, but on average it's about two shows. Mm-hmm. And we're just a conversational podcast that interviews paranormal people or we just talk about whatever we want and uh <laughs> this show has been in existence since around 2002 so there's a lot of archives and you, if you really want to do a deep dive and and go way back into the past so yeah and if you are interested in any of my books they're available wherever books are sold of course if you buy them directly from me at mysteriousmichigan.com i will send you really cool stickers one of them is a hologram and everyone loves holograms so mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah, you'll get perks and you can support your authors directly instead of, you know, guys like Amazon. So I appreciate it. But yeah, that's where you can find me. I am bad at social media. You can find me <laughs> if you go on Facebook and type in Mysterious Michigan. I do have a page. You can just look Amber Rose Hammond up on Instagram, Twitter. I consider a dumpster fire. So I <laughs> don't really I have a Twitter account, but like I rarely look at it or post anything. So mm-hmm. Facebook's probably still, you know, the place to find me. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, and I'm glad you, you got the plug for Ghostly Talk in there. I um I started listening to some episodes. Obviously, I have a long way to go based on, you know, what you just said, too. So uh, I, I got a lot of archive episodes to, to go through. But, yeah, once again, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for doing this. And, yeah, I always enjoy talking about the paranormal and strange history, especially with a fellow Michigander and Enjoyed hearing more about your travel tastes and finer details regarding your books and wish you nothing but the best in all of your future endeavors, uh, all your future projects and whatnot. And I don't know, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it much here, but uh, I'll definitely have to throw, uh, I have to throw one of those uh, cemetery tours on my calendar. You end up still doing any of those in the future too. <laughs> yeah. We'll be bringing those back hopefully in person for 2023. You know, the pandemic kind of uh, okay. messed that up as well, but we in the Grand Haven area, if you live in that spot, we do three different, tours um we might even be doing the legendary nunica cemetery which is if you look up like most haunted cemeteries in michigan nunica is always on the list it will not be a ghost tour Mm -hmm. we always tell everyone they're not ghost tours they're called wicked tours they're true crime Mm -hmm. but if there's a ghost story i'm usually the one to like throw in one or two ghost ghostly tales during the tour but they're a lot of fun for sure yeah no and i always love going on different you know cemetery tours ghost tour what well you know whatever you want to label them but just hearing the stories and the history and just kind of doing a walking tour yeah i mean i eat that stuff up but 
Yeah, no, this is such a blast. This is a great conversation. And yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your evening and hope we keep in touch. Yeah, thank you so much, Eric. Awesome. Yeah, you take care. Thank you so much for tuning in and checking out the show. Links to Amber Rose's website, socials, and other resources can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review for Juxtapose Journeys wherever you stream your podcast. And maybe tell a friend or two about the show. Any feedback is always welcome and appreciated, and it helps the show reach more listeners. It also keeps new episodes coming out. If you're an entrepreneur, creator, or live an interesting lifestyle, take a few minutes to fill out the questionnaire I have linked below. If you're a good fit, I'll be sure to get in touch with you to be featured on a future episode. I just ask that you have some patience, as I'm pretty backed up with any of your requests at the moment. So thank you to everyone who's reached out and has expressed interest in being on the show. The Juxtaposed Journeys logo was designed by Darius Norwood. The website was designed by Elise Benner. And music has been provided by Young Pioneer. Final mixing and interviews are conducted by yours truly, Eric Spitz. Thank you for listening, and remember to never stop exploring.